Amen. Will you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning once again to the 8th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, where we will be looking together this morning at verses 4 through 8. That is Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 8. And you can find that passage either on page 1077 of your pew Bibles or beginning there at the bottom of page 42 in your Acts journals. While you're making your way there this morning, allow me to just briefly remind you of where we're at in our look together at this powerful retelling of the history of the first church recorded for us here by Luke in the book of Acts. Last week, I began by, began by telling you that one of the things that is becoming more and more clear to me as we make our way through this book, the Acts of the Apostles, is that often we must slow down and we must really consider the weight and the significance of what is going on in the pages of this book. Certainly that was and indeed is the case with the death of the church's first martyr, Stephen. His death and the speech that precedes it are very important in the furtherance of the gospel from that point on. This is far, far more than just some unfortunate misunderstanding or some clashing of ideologies between Stephen and the Sanhedrin. They, the Sanhedrin that is, are standing, or at least I should say, they are trying to stand in the way of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a good reminder for us. What we have here is but a a part of a a single thread that is woven throughout the entirety of the Bible. And I mentioned that thread to you last week. That thread is Satan seeks to disrupt, thwart, and complicate the advancement of the kingdom of God. And he always has. I mentioned to you last week, it was Satan. He was there in the garden. He was there in the wilderness. He was there throughout the time of the prophets. He was there throughout the time of the exile. He was there raising concerns in Herod's mind as Jesus Christ was born. He was there as they crucified the Lord. He's there now, even now, in your doubts and some of your concerns and your fears. He's always been there. Behind the scenes, scheming, aggravating, raising doubts in the minds of God's people with his ever clever and effective line, did God really say? But the truth is, he will not, and he cannot ever then or now or even in the future ever prevail against the kingdom of God. No one stands against this king. But he still frustrates, doesn't he? And at the death of Stephen, certainly, he was there. Raising the aggravation level of many, convincing men to begin picking up stones. Urging Saul to not only consent to the death of Stephen, but perhaps to even add to those numbers others of these troublesome Christians. And if we're not careful, and we never get past the surfaces of things, 
We come to passages in scripture like this one and we worry that Satan, that great enemy of Almighty God, is somehow gaining ground in this war. Stephen is gone. He's dead. Murdered. He was doing so much good for the world. He was casting out demons and he was healing the sick and the broken. He was preaching the gospel with Holy Spirit power to all of those who were flocking to him in Jerusalem. And desperate lives, broken lives, were being transformed to the glory of God. And just like that, he's gone, killed. And this Saul, he's awful. Many believe that it was Saul that probably spearheaded this entire ridiculous trial. Stephen dies, and this Saul ramps up the persecution to the point that the Christians in Jerusalem begin to flee from Jerusalem for their very lives. Men and women are being hauled off by this wicked man and thrown into prison. In the gospel, The message of the kingdom seems for the moment to be getting silenced. You can imagine the people. Where is God in all of this? Is he paying attention? Does he even care? And we can relate to that, right? Everybody should be saying, yes, we can relate to that. We do that. Where is God in your pain this morning? We begin to misunderstand and we begin to doubt and perhaps we even begin to feel sorry for ourselves that we are somehow caught in between these two competing cosmic forces. Light and dark. Good and evil. Sounds familiar, right? Of course it does. We know the cries of our flesh, do we not? However, beloved, it is the flesh and not the truth. We do not live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of our flesh. We live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of Almighty God. We do not live by the mere appearances appearances of things, but by faith we take God at His word. And there in His word we learn things. Things like his faithfulness. Things like the fact that God is truly sovereign. That he stands over all things. We learn that he is the God of history. And he's moving history itself according to his perfect and holy will and purposes. The text last week at the beginning of this eighth chapter proved it. What is transpiring in Jerusalem is not the problem of Stephen somehow being the victim of chance. He's not at the wrong place in the wrong time. This was the fulfillment of prophecy from Jesus Christ himself. 
Chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said just prior to his ascension, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This great persecution led to the scattering of the Christian church and the message of the gospel going out into the world. They would take the gospel to anyone who would give them an audience. And that truth, beloved, changes the way that you should see this narrative. Consider it once again this morning. Stephen dies. Death to the flesh seems to be the end. But the Spirit of God proves that from death comes life. God confirms his plan for the kingdom and Stephen receives from God this confirming, tremendously comforting vision of Jesus, the Son of God, standing at the right hand. A vision that he proclaims out loud and is recorded in Scripture by Luke for us and our assurance. Satan and his minions pounce. They raise up Saul of Tarsus to come and inflict the mortal wound to Jesus Christ and his fledgling church. He consents to Stephen's death and he begins in earnest his reign of terror upon the church. He carts Christians, men and women, off and throws them into prison. And Almighty God uses the gospel and the prayer of a dying man to begin a work, to begin a process upon this wicked man's heart that ultimately will lead him to write just shy of 25% of the New Testament and to become the greatest theologian who ever lived, Christ himself accepted. And we need to be reminded, don't we? What on earth do we as the people of God have to fear. The kingdom of God marches on. And it always will until Jesus comes again in glory and in power and makes all things new once and for all. Beloved, I want to tell you, despite your fears this morning, despite the circumstances or the appearances of your life, I want you to know this. God has the reins of your life. He is sovereign and the word of God overwhelmingly says that he is for you. And we will see that great truth expounded yet again in this text that's before us this morning. So if you've not yet done so, please turn with me in your Bibles once again to the 8th chapter of the book of Acts and follow along as I read verses 4 through 8. Hear now the word of our Lord. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere, preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful for the opportunity we have to come to your word this morning. We pray that your spirit would fill us. I pray, Father, that your spirit would fill me, that I would handle your word in a way that is accurate and a way that brings you all of the glory. We pray, Father, that you would open our minds and our hearts to this truth, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, despite this brutal persecution of the church following the death of Stephen, God continues his mission of redeeming a people for for himself from every tribe, from every nation, and every tongue. Nothing will stop the forward progress of the kingdom and its magnificent king. Nothing can. And I think that in this text that is before us this morning, we can begin to see just a few things about this message of the kingdom, this gospel, that truly should fill all of the people with God, all of the people of God with a very real, very steadfast hope this morning. And it is my prayer that this would be an encouragement to us as we live out our own callings in this very kingdom. First, I would point out to you this truth that we see very clearly here. The gospel raises us far above our circumstances. The gospel raises us far above our circumstances. Do you see that here? Consider what's going on. And remember that we are not to be swayed by the mere appearances of things. But appearances here, certainly for the church, are bleak. I mentioned that last week and again this morning, though, that things are not always as they appear. God's ways are not man's ways, but let's consider it. The church at large flees Jerusalem to escape this ham-fisted persecution of Saul and the Sanhedrin. But the apostles themselves stay. They are somehow able to set up their home base, if you will, In Jerusalem, the rest of the church flees into the surrounding area. And many, it would appear, fled into Samaria. Now, we've talked at length about Samaria several times before. They were a despised people. Not going to rehash their whole history again this morning. We need to know that at least. They were despised, they were hated. The Jewish people despised them for several reasons. One was that they, the Jewish people in Samaria, had sort of intermingled, intermarried with the people who were around them from the exile. Another was that they had sort of intermingled their religion as well. They used only the Pentateuch, and even that was a slightly different version of the Pentateuch than was accepted by the Jewish people in Jerusalem. They had some of their own peculiar beliefs regarding the coming of the Messiah, who he was and what he would be, what he would do. But perhaps the largest of all the differences was that they had actually went so far as to build another temple, a rival temple. And of course, they did not build it in Jerusalem, but on Mount Gerizim. So the Jewish people of pure origins despised them for reasons like these and others. In fact, 
they, that is the Jewish people, would travel very far out of their way just to avoid going through the land of the Samaritans. They considered both the people and the land they lived in defiled. So they avoided it. They went the long way around, and these Christians, both of Jewish and Greek descent now, are fleeing into the land of Samaria. And understand here, the Samaritans were not exactly crazy about the Jewish people either. It went both ways. And it was here that the people of God were forced to flee into a land that their people had always despised. A land that despised their people. A land that just like Jerusalem was suffering the results of a world that was desperately broken because of the fall. Demon possessions were there. As were sicknesses and diseases of all kinds. Brokenness abounded in Samaria just like it did in Jerusalem. Just like it did everywhere else. And to make matters worse, they were fleeing into a place like Samaria without their leadership. Do you catch that here? Without their teachers, the apostles, even being with them. We know Philip was there. He was a deacon. We'll discuss him in a minute. Perhaps some of the other Greek-speaking deacons from back in uh, chapter 6 that cared for the widows. Some of them are there, but the apostles are not. And it appeared to be a rather hopeless situation. But look at the way Luke describes it in verse 4. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere, hiding in the woods, avoiding eye contact. They went everywhere preaching the gospel. Do you see that? Do they sound like hard-pressed sort of down-and-outers? Just hoping upon hope that the nasty Samaritans do not recognize them and deal with them too harshly? Of course not. Do they sound like people who are only safe and able to be effective in the presence of their leadership? Of course not. Why not? Because they have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. They have been transformed by the message of the kingdom and their great and mighty king. And what do people who have been transformed by the gospel do? They go and they share the gospel with anyone and everyone who will hear it. Luke tells us they went or they were scattered everywhere. Not just where they knew they were safe. Everywhere. And they're not at all discouraged by leaving the safety of Jerusalem and the apostles. They were encouraged to take the gospel of Jesus Christ, not just to the world, and I want you to hear this, but to their enemies. The despised ones. Do you understand? Let me ask you something, beloved. Is that convicting? I want to confess to you, it is for me. 
It can get pretty easy to preach to the choir. It's not difficult to take the gospel into the safety of the church and preach it to people who are just all too happy to hear it. Happy to be reminded of their only comfort in life and in death. It is much, much more difficult to preach it and proclaim it in the face of hatred. To people who are disgusted with you. People who hate you. It's much more difficult to take it to people who are your known enemies, isn't it? Do you relate to that this morning? The word of God's going to pry into your life this morning. I'm not going to apologize for it. Are there people in your life that you have decided are not really worth your time? Who are not worthy of the saving good news of the gospel from your lips? Are there people that you despise and feel justified in it? People like these Samaritans. People that just cause you to well up with contempt. Not these fleeing, brand new baby Christians in Jerusalem. They gladly go into Samaria and anywhere else for that matter, speaking the glorious good news that Jesus Christ is indeed the one, the long-awaited one, the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of the promises of Almighty God. Can you imagine that He has come, that He was and is what we could never be, righteous. That he took our sin and our shame with him to the cross. He paid for them with his life. And he does not leave us naked and afraid. But clothes us in his own perfect righteousness. Beloved, this message transformed these people through the power of the Holy Spirit. And they rose above their circumstances and pointed everyone else to the greatest hope in all the world even while their own situations appeared to be hopeless. Does it convict you? Praise God. It should. What are you willing to do about it? Should you, should I, should we, should any of us have been transformed by this message any less than these people? Are your current circumstances somehow just a little bit worse than theirs? Come on. Of course not. We see very clearly here that the gospel raises us far, far above our current circumstances, our particular difficulties. Secondly, I think we see here that the gospel truly is the power of Almighty God to salvation. That sounds familiar, right? Some of you are mouthing it. Guy, I know you want to, right? Romans 1, 16. Right? 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. For the Jew first, and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Do you see how well it fits here? Consider the power of the gospel. 
It raises these people far, far above their own circumstances. They had every reason, every logical reason to be deathly afraid. They had reason to hide. They had reason to run like Lot and his daughters into the caves and slip away from all apparent danger. They had reason to do all they could to slip into a place like Samaria and just figure out a way to blend in. To not rock the proverbial boat. But they cannot. Why? Because the gospel is power and the just shall live by faith. Not by sight. By faith in the person and work of their Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see it? They do what they must. They proclaim the gospel of life to the death that surrounds them. They're no longer living by the stellar reasoning of logic and their flesh. They must point the world to Jesus and full salvation in him. They must. Because the gospel is the power of God to salvation. And they must give everyone everywhere the means of salvation. They're desperate to do it. And look at what God does. You know, Philip is mentioned here by name. He preaches the gospel to the Samaritans. And what happens? They open up a public discourse, a debate over the merits of the gospel or their own accepted way of seeing things, which we'll get into was, you know, to follow Simon the sorcerer because he showed them power. Is that what they do? No. Look at verses 6 and 7. And the multitudes with one accord. In unity, heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did for unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. Philip points them to the good news of Jesus Christ in the gospel, and what happens? Restoration begins in Samaria. Praise God. Demons flee before the truth of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished for us. Not just one or two, many demons. They flee before the truth of the gospel. And the effects of sin and the fall, the brokenness that surrounds all of us in this life, begin to be healed in confirmation of the gospel that Philip preaches. The paralyzed and the lame get up. And walk. Beloved, nothing gets in the way of this work of restoration, and we need to see that. The history of their relationship does not get in the way of the gospel. The demons being embedded in their midst, many, many demons being embedded in their midst, does not get in the way of the gospel. The fear of everyone involved does not get in the way of the gospel. The absence of the apostles does not get in the way of the gospel. Why? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is power. It's power. <clears throat> the power of God to salvation to the Jew first, then the world, even Samaria. 
Beloved, I want to ask you something this morning. Do you believe that? Truly believe that? Do you believe that there is no sin that could somehow keep you from the love of God that is so evident in the gospel of Jesus Christ? If you do, then please understand that you have another perceived source of truth that is not truth, and you're not getting that from this one, from this source of truth. This one says there is no thing that can do that. Understand, there is no sin. You are not now, nor have you ever been, too sinful for the blood of Christ. Neither is anyone else. The gospel is power. It's the power to convict you of your innumerable sins. It's the power to make you perfectly righteous in Jesus by faith. It's power. What stands in the way of that power for you? Can anything truly stand in the way? What has the effect of the gospel been upon your own life? And it brings me to the final point that I want to make this morning. And undoubtedly, you've already seen it, right? What did it do beyond the immediate work of restoration for all of these broken souls in Samaria? Look at verse 8. And there was great joy in the city. I want to hammer on this. (laughs) What does the restorative work of the gospel do for those whom God calls to it? It brings great joy. Do you understand? Why? Because we were dead in trespasses and sin. I was lost, but now I'm found. Because the gospel takes what is dead and utterly hopeless and it raises it to life in Jesus Christ. Wonderfully alive in Jesus Christ for eternity. Beloved, in the gospel, my sins are remembered no more. They're removed from me as far as the east is from the west. I'm made perfect in the spotless righteousness of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because as one through who, who through the power of the Holy Spirit has had my eyes open to the gospel, I never need to live in fear of anything again. Neither do you. Because my job as a Christian is to celebrate this wonderful truth with all that I am, with all that I have, for whatever days God blesses me with in this life. Because the wonderful truth of the gospel is God is faithful. Do you believe that this morning? What is it that gets in the way of our joy here? It's a tough question to answer, isn't it? It requires us to be brutally honest about the root of the problem. Do you see the root of the problem this morning? Listen, the root of the problem is not this building or anything associated with it. The root of the problem is none of these people around you who may or may not agree with you about what you feel is important. 
The root of your problem is not this red-faced pastor who never ceases blathering on about the gospel. That's not the root of your problem. It's not your spouse. It's not your difficult marriage. It's not your job. It's not your children. It's not your health. The root of the problem is you and your sin. It's me and my sin. Why are we not joyful in light of the gospel? Because all too often in our sin, we get swept up in the lies of the devil. He is a defeated foe, but he ever lives to frustrate. He lives to see us exchange our joy for another justified reason to be miserable. I'm coming after myself here as much as I'm coming after any of us. The truth is we all lose the truth of our identity. We forget what we are and we chase happiness in any of the synthetic counterfeits that this world and the devil are all too happy to, happy to offer up. We chase it in careers and wealth and health and aesthetics and being around the right people. We look for anything else to find our identity in. We desperately seek our happiness from plastic joy that will never suffice because it's not joy at all. What are we to do? We go to the word of God and we are reminded of this. We need to be reminded that our identity is wrapped up in our Savior and King. That because of who Jesus is and because of what he accomplished for us, we are now in union with him by faith. We are in union with his life and his death and his resurrection, his ascension. We are righteous in him. So perfectly righteous in him that in the words of our catechism, it is as if we ourselves had never sinned nor had any sin. Do you believe that? That we ourselves had accomplished all the obedience which Jesus Christ had accomplished for us. Do you believe that? That is who you are in Christ. And beloved, it ought to fill you with joy. Not just this morning, but every single day that God in his mercy blesses you with precious life. Life that was meant to do what these Christians in this text before us did. Take the beautiful message of the gospel, regardless of your circumstances, into the world and bask in the joy of it. Are you joyful? In the light of the word of God this morning, why on earth are you not? We must come and see the truth and have our perspective adjusted. Because the truth is, this joy, this gospel joy, it's not just for some of us. It's not just for those who have joy as a unique spiritual gift. It's nonsense. It is the effect of the gospel of Jesus Christ upon those who have been blessed to see it. And beloved, I ask you, do not let anything get in the way of that. Recognize it when you see it and run to Jesus. Let your joy be known in this world. Amen? Let's pray.